0: This is a podcast from 2MBS Fine Music Sydney.
1: Hello, I'm Simon Moore. Welcome to In Conversation on 2MBS Fine Music Sydney and around Australia on the Community Radio Network. This week, In Conversation is on tour. Back in July, I had the great fortune of attending the Australian Festival of Chamber Music in Townsville. Festival director Jack Liebeck curated an absolutely delightful schedule of concerts, talks and other events for his second year as artistic director. Artists travelled from all over the world to be part of this festival and I'm delighted that one of those artists is my guest for today's programme. Katia Apekasheva has earned her place as one of Europe's most renowned pianists. Gramophone magazine described her as a profoundly gifted artist. She's performed across the world in auspicious venues including London's Wigmore Hall and appears on multiple albums. This week, her latest album with fellow pianist Charles Owen is released on the Orchid Classics label, featuring the music of Poulenc, Debussy and Milo. Let's go now to my conversation with Katya Apekasheva recorded at this year's Australian Festival of Chamber Music. Katia Apakasheva, thank you for taking the time to be in conversation. Uh, Thank you for having me. Well, welcome to Townsville and welcome
0: to Australia. Is this your first time here? It's not my first time here, it's my third time here. Yeah, In fact, I came to Townsville five years ago.
1: So what's the appeal of the Australian Festival of Chamber Music for you?
0: Well, I suppose many appeals. I mean, the first time I arrived, I mean, obviously, I, I've never been to Australia before and being in a tropical place, so beautiful, different climate and amazing gathering of musicians is quite a big festival with them. I've taken part in a lot of... Smaller festivals where you would have perhaps maybe 10 musicians or so. But uh, here I believe it's like around 30 musicians. So it's quite a big festival. It is actually a big festival, yes. Yes, and so many events... Um,
1: It's go, 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 yes, because I think you've just come from a performance now, as we're we're conducting this interview on
0: Saturday. (laughs) And then you've got got more this evening, do you? Uh, I'm not playing this evening, but there is a concert this evening. But there's rehearsals and so on. Yes, (laughs) yes, yes, it's
1: endless. (laughs) So, yes, there are lots of artists. And I think part of the point of these sorts of festivals, isn't it, that you do get to mix and match all the artists together. Is there anyone in particular you've been looking forward to performing with?
0: Oh, it's hard to say. I mean, it's always nice, like you said, there's a mixture of people that I know. I've known in UK and, well, Jack Liebek is a very old friend of mine. In fact, we go back more than 20 years ago. We recorded this, our first CD together. But it's it's always interesting to meet some new people. And that's also one of the appeals, I guess, of this festival, because people come, like you say, from all over the world. And it's lovely to meet some Australian musicians that perhaps we don't have so often in UK. So... I I can't single out one person, but um, (laughs) I look forward to a lot of performances.
1: Now, one of the things that uh, the festival director, Jack Liebeck has introduced to the AFCM is this idea of the guilty pleasure. Oh, yes. uh, Which is uh, where each artist gets a chance to perform a personal piece, perhaps, to the audience. Can I ask what your guilty pleasure is?
0: Uh, Well, I've always wanted to play jazz because I'm classically trained with a very sort of traditional school of piano playing and, and classical training, that everything has to be perfect. And I've always envied people who could improvise and play jazz, and I, I adore jazz. So I've chosen Gershwin's someone to watch over me in arrangement of Tom Poster, who is a friend of mine. So I'm gonna try and <laughs> pretend I can play jazz. <laughs> it's not a piece you play normally in uh, in concert, is it? It's not what I normally play. Although I mean, I've I've done some Gershwin, like with yeah. also with like with the violin, and I and I I love playing it. Fantastic. Well, I look forward
1: to hearing that performance later in the week. But uh, I think we have to have your first selection of music for this program. And uh, well, we're starting with a. Uh, well, something that's particularly special for most pianists, I think, and that's uh, J.S. Bach's Goldberg Variations. Can you tell us uh, why this piece is uh, important to you? Uh,
0: well, yes, it is an iconic piece of music which has uh, also been transcribed for various other instruments and for uh, groups of instruments. Mm. It's a very long piece, a set of theme of and variations. Absolutely hypnotic, the way they go from one to another, and uh, what Bach is able to do. This, this piece was actually written partly to treat insomnia. Of really? One of the, yes, um, you know, kind of a commission that he had. So that's why, I mean, it is monumental. I, I think if it's run without with all the repeats, I mean, it, it would be close to an hour, which, of course, is like massively long. But I just think it's most magical set of variations, starting with magnificent aria and finishing, with the same music that it started and uh, the particular interpretation of Glenn Gould is iconic for many pianists and also because he sort of breaks rules from traditional way of playing Bach and completely reinvented it in a way and did some really daring things. So for for me it was really amazing to hear it for the first time when I was a teenager.
1: a small selection of J.S. Barr's Goldberg Variations. We heard Glenn Gould there from his original 1956 recording of the Goldberg Variations, and that was the choice of my guest in conversation today, Katya Apekasheva, who is here at the Australian Festival of Chamber Music in Townsville, which is where this program is being recorded. Uh, Katia, I-, I had to say the 1956 version because actually Glenn Gould recorded that Twice, which
0: is quite extraordinary, isn't it? Not, not
1: it, many musicians get a chance to record <laughs> yes, something twice. Yes, yeah,
0: absolutely. Well, Glenn Gould was famously obsessed with recordings. He, at some point, he basically stopped performing live in the concert halls and kind of lived in a recording studio, experimenting and trying on different things. So for him, it was not so unusual, I guess. What is unusual... Is how different these two recordings are, and and they—they're basically, you know, the second recording is like twice as long, but it's not quite twice as long. Yeah, but it's really slow compared to the first Much, much slower than the first recording, and and but they're both great. I mean, it's hard to sort of say which one I prefer. You know, I think it also shows how the interpretation, how different that it can be. There's no limit to how you can hear the piece how you can experiment playing it in different way and and i think that was also the essence of Glenn Gould's art if you yeah. want because he tried and and did most daring things and Yeah
1: can you expand on that what you were talking about before about being daring like what do you does that mean is that that's not just tempo is it
0: No it's just i mean we also have sort of preconceived ideas, especially as classical musicians, when we started getting recordings of pieces, how they should sound traditionally. Uh, it's it's a quite broad subject. We, we sort of had this some iconic performances and then sort of people think, well, that's how it has to be played. But of course, there's no such thing. You know, it's a personal interpretation and of course composer gives us some guidance and some more than others. Well, if, in fact, Bach didn't give any guidance because he didn't write any dynamics in in his core. And and that makes it amazing in some ways. And in other ways, very difficult to interpret because it's a complete blank canvas. It's not even like with songs, you have at least words Mm. to to say. But here, you know, it's up to you to color this in, you know. Yeah, so daring, yeah, uh, definitely not just the tempos, but the character. You can sometimes discover completely different character and something yes. that you thought of is, you know, I don't know, jolly or, you know, happy, maybe has a, another layer to it that you discover, but of course you need to go through process of thinking about it and trying something. Mm, fascinating. So I want to take you back to
1: those early years, perhaps when you're learning the piano for the first time. What, what are your memories of that?
0: Uh, well, my, Apart my pa- from hearing Glen Gould. <laughs> <laughs> the early memories is um, my parents are both pianists and they, they work with opera singers and music was completely natural path for me. So, well, I remember, you know, I went to specialist music school in Moscow and renowned music school. And I had quite intense upbringing from very early age. And you know because that's how it was done in russia and soviet union you know those times soviet, if, soviet if, days, yes, yes there were still soviet days and <laughs> sort of you were expected to play already in young age very advanced pieces very difficult pieces the technical level was extremely high the standard mm. you know so how how did they can you can you expand on that
1: how did they determine that you were chosen as it were to be part of that school and to have that intense training because I assume it wasn't just because your parents were pianists. Oh, no,
0: no. but obviously my parents knew somebody who sort of recommended that school. Right. And then you kind of had to go and sort of for, well, not formal audition, but you sort of met a couple of teachers. And of course, I was then barely six years old. Six. So I was Yes. And uh, I just had to sing some songs and, you know, and they thought I was very musical. And my first, very first teacher, I have to say, I mean, she who taught me piano said that, my hands were naturally very good. Even in that age, she could tell that she said when I put my hands on the piano, it was completely natural. So th- that's what I'm told. How were you
1: already playing it by that? Well, a little bit. No, twinkle, no, twinkle. yeah. Twinkle. No, I wasn't, you know. <laughs> yeah. But
0: I was, I mean, they sort of had the, uh, I mean, officially you go to school sort of when you're seven years old, like you start your yeah. sort of first lessons. But already year before, there was like a preschool sort of program. So... So it is from very young age. I, I wonder, yeah.
1: So this intense, as it were, serious training from a very young age was that kind of instead of normal schooling, or was that on top of normal schooling? That was on
0: top of normal schooling. So that that specialist school basically had yeah. intense music education, but also general. Uh, education as well but uh, I have frankly I have to say not on a, as high level as the musical <laughs> subject no. I'm still suffering from l- <laughs> lack of general knowledge lack sometimes general knowledge. yes I don't want to say, uh, speak well, badly you know of my school two makes. no but that's I mean yeah. I guess it's very difficult to get it right yeah. because it it was well I, I, I believe it still is an extraordinary school in terms yes. of musical development and how it pushed you you yeah. know to but i guess you can't have everything no <laughs> so. but but i'm
1: curious also how that affects you sort of psychologically like when you're going through that intense training you, you, do you reach an age where you want to reconsider whether this is actually what you want to do or was it always the natural thing you just loved it all the way through
0: i've always loved it mm. like i never ever even could imagine doing anything else but i do think sometimes of course not uh, maybe every pupil in that school felt the same way and not everyone could reach such high, high level. And there were a couple, of, you know, there were a few people dropping out. I mean, and uh, some people did change profession. and But that's, at the time especially, it was considered like a failure. I think in my country, if you were <laughs> yes. trained in a specialist school and then you changed to something else. Yes and and which is also kind of very sad because the the that way of thinking that you have to stick to one thing and uh, you know for at whatever cost and you know so i kind of always admired people who were managed to change their completely change direction in life and find something perhaps much more fulfilling Mm. well some more
1: music now katia and uh, we have some richard strauss in one of his four last songs why have you chosen this one
0: Oh, just I, I just think this music is so special. I mean, well, it's as the title suggests. It's a very one of his late, you know, late late works. Strauss led a long life, perhaps a little bit controversial composer with his association with Nazis, Nazi Party, but nevertheless, um, genius composer. And I think these songs, I in particularly in the interpretation of Jesse Norman. Uh, Again, I think I heard it in teenage years, it absolutely captivated me, just the beauty of harmony, of lusciousness, and also just the emotion in in them is so, so, so strong. Some kind of farewell to the world and um, the beauty, yeah, I I, I just remember kind of listening to it on the loop, you know, just (laughs) obsessed with this music.
1: Absolutely gorgeous September from Richard Strauss's Four Last Songs, the irreplaceable Jesse Norman, the soprano in that performance with Kurt Mazur conducting the Gewandhaus Orchestra. The choice of my guest in conversation today, pianist Katia Apekisheva. I'm here with her at the Australian Festival of Chamber Music in Townsville. So, Katia, uh, obviously you, you were saying that this is your career. No, No question you love it. But how do you move from that school in Moscow to... Make a career because I think you go to Jerusalem. Is that correct?
0: Yes, I I went to Israel for two and a half years after my studies. I have a lot of family in Israel, and I actually continued my piano studies with Irina Berkovich, who is a friend and colleague of my parents. So there was a link there. So I sp- spent some time there, and then I uh, went on to study in Royal College of Music in London. Yeah, that was I guess some turning point in terms of starting to perform more, you know, having concerts because, of course, that really takes time to start building what you call a career, mm-hmm. is how do you, you know, to get performing opportunities to develop. I mean, it, it, you know, it doesn't happen overnight. Well, maybe to somebody else, <laughs> I don't know. And, and and it's a kind of process which is also, has ups and downs. I mean, the I think career of musician, of performer is never, in majority of cases yes. completely straight forward and and sort of you you know you, you just never know how many concerts you get when and um that's a big challenge of profession of course mm. was there a contrast
1: between that sort of strict soviet style education and then going to places like the royal academy of music i mean it must have been very different?
0: Uh, Yes, Royal College well, I actually had a Russian teacher there, Uh so so it was not I mean, in terms of system, yeah, of course completely different, yeah Uh, but I've had uh, an amazing teacher, Irina Zaritskaya who, you know, gave me so much and I suppose my majority of my education is Russian piano school, I would say although I I did have some lessons with wonderful Imogen Cooper fantastic Mm. British uh, pianist who is, comes from very different sort of school, sort of v- Viennese, German, uh, and that was very interesting.
1: Yes, so tell me about that difference between, I mean, you talk about the Russian school or the Viennese school, what, what does that really mean?
0: Well, yeah, I mean, I don't like my labels so much, but uh, in my time when, when I was growing up, in the Russian school probably, I mean, the best of it is like a, a emphasis on the beautiful sound on the piano very sort of a lot of legato control of sort of singing sound, deep sound, and uh, traditionally this sort of way of playing very traditional repertoire, a lot of romantic repertoire, late classical, well, German way of teaching, I guess, it's also a lot to do with just German repertoire, in specifically. So it's it's more the repertoire than it
1: is the. Some style of the of repertoire,
0: playing. but I think, like in my sort of perception, that the German Viennese wave uh, to do much more with certain details of the pieces and huge emphasis of composers' marking, articulations, and and sort of much more pedantic, maybe, if you want, in some some way. I mean, again, these are sort of such broad terms. The Russian school, the German, it's quite generalized terms. So we need another two hours interview to go into, you know, really specifics (laughs) of,
1: you know, that sort of thing. We've just finished a big uh, piano competition here in Sydney. Uh, These competitions are quite the rite of passage for many musicians, uh, especially for pianists, I, Uh I feel. What was your experience with Piano competitions.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess they serve a purpose. I mean, in in past sort of decades, the the sort of competitions seem to be everywhere. You know, in if we go back sort of forty years or so, you know, there was a handful of really big competitions and which were hugely prestigious. And you know, now there seem to be competition in sort of every other town or city. So. Even though, of course, they can open some doors, but I think people can't rely too much on competitions as their way of making a career. Uh-huh. Maybe, again, apart from a few, because there are still like only maybe five really big competitions, piano, I'm talking about piano, piano yeah. competitions, which really put you on international seen straight away, I suppose. And even then, of course you're not guaranteed you know anything apart from playing concerts that are part of your price, you know. But um, I guess it, it's an opportunity to be heard. I mean, that's why they're good in a way that how else can people know about you even if you play really well? You know, you have to be heard by more than and just I suppose friends. Also,
1: is it also that thing about preparing a certain amount of repertoire for performance? Exactly. Yeah. I mean,
0: also these competitions don't normally require huge programs and they have three, four rounds, you know, so you have to prepare so much stuff. I mean, for me personally, definitely, I think, you know, I've done some competitions, some I've done well in, some less good. I mean, I, again, there's sometimes very s- difficult to understand the logic wh- why, you know, you you win a prize and sometimes not playing particularly well and then you play really well and you get knocked out, in the, you know, in one of the rounds, you know, it's <laughs> uh, uh, you have to kind of take it with a pinch of salt. And if yes, you sort of not take just, it too personally. No, perhaps, yeah. yeah, I guess so, yeah. I mean, I've definitely, I mean, I was a prize winner in Leeds competition, which is one of the biggest competitions in the world, still is, I think. And um, that did open some doors for me, for sure. But again, even after that, my pa- professional path was not quite straightforward it sort of had ups and downs so you can't just sort of expect Mm. that from winning a prize in a major competition your life is sorted it Mm. doesn't work like that
1: it's interesting you mentioned that sometimes you know you you felt you played well and you get knocked out and sometimes you played not so well you think not so well and and yet you get a prize yeah is that part of the difficulty of judging your own performance at all generally and do you still find that now um,
0: yeah i guess it's difficult to judge your own performance because it's from within you, you can't hear yourself from outside and you don't know what impression you make also you don't know because now i sometimes am on jury of some competition mm. so i'm on the other side it's just very difficult sometimes you know because you don't know also how other people play who you're playing next to maybe you suddenly just have a bad luck of playing like most amazing person yes. and just not make as strong impression maybe if you were i mean there are some and, and there are just so many factors just on the day of when you play you know and maybe even the choice of program may have been you know didn't capture the judges ears it it is brutal I mean to be completely honest I wish competitions didn't exist Mm. I mean it is it's not a sport it shouldn't be a sport music you know and and it's not who plays the fastest or you know who has the most stamina to go through all these uh, recitals and I have to say sometimes it is about that as well as other qualities because actually to get through four rounds of playing like vast amount of repertoire and play it all well and secure and, and you know, and that's why sometimes, I'm not saying always, people who win the top prizes, not maybe necessarily most interesting musicians, they can be, of course, they, they, they have to be really Brilliant. good, Brilliant. yeah, they they wouldn't win otherwise, but, you know, sometimes some vulnerability is also good quality and artistic quality and that person might not play like a robot and might not not always perform the best they can every time they play it's something about, you know, maybe extra sensitivity. So, I mean, there are many factors.
1: Interesting. Well, our next piece of music now, Katia, is Janacek and a violin sonata. Why is this one special to you?
0: Uh, Janacek is a very special composer for me. Actually, this particular piece I've chosen, I mean, I could have chosen sort of, I absolutely adore his piano works and operas. I mean, probably one of sort of his most important works, operas, I would say, but, I heard some bits of Violent Sonata in the film, which I love, The Unbearable Lightness of Being. Oh, if you've seen it yeah. with Daniel Day Lewis, an old film with Juliette Binoche, and I, it was a beautiful film. And he uses um, the director uses a lot of uh, Janacek in it the, from Violent Sonata, and and also it's I mean that culture is I, I love it. I'm actually at the moment reading. The book of Milan Kundera who, who died just very recently and one of my absolute favorite authors so somehow i have this memory of this film and and something to do with this era of czech republic i well Janacek just has most unique musical language he's unlike any other composer. you know that he he was writing in time with like so many other sort of already sort of things being born stravinsky and, um, and yet he stayed completely in his own uninfluenced yeah. uh, composing world and has a lot of really kind of quirky, unusual harmonies and rhythms. And, and his music is completely, I always feel it goes so straight in your heart, even your stomach. It's just sort of, it's just very, very powerful emotion.
1: Gustan Hadelish, the violinist with Janicek's violin sonata, the ballad, we heard there, and the pianist was Charles Owen, the choice of my guest in conversation today, pianist Katia Apekasheva, who is here at the Australian Festival of Chamber Music in Townsville. Now, Katia, the pianist we heard, Charles Owen there, well, that's not a coincidence. He's uh, someone a little bit uh, important in your professional life, isn't he?
0: Yes, absolutely. Charles is, um, and I go back many, many years. We actually, well, actually the very first time we met, but I don't, I haven't actually met him in person, was when I was uh, on a trip to UK with my school, with a group from Gnesian School in uh, when I was 12 years old. So, you met uh, him when you were 12? Uh, wow. uh, we, play, we had a concert at the in School and. In UK, the, another specialist music school where Charles was a student, and I played in a concert. I haven't met Charles, but he remembers me uh-huh. uh, from from that time. So we always laugh about it. Uh, but he, we later on in Royal College of Music, we we had the same teacher, Irina Zaritska. So it kind of goes back to that time, you know, '90s that uh, we, w- we were both studying and became friends and sort of in, in later on we were asked to play in a f- festival together and a piece for two pianos and from then on we started working together and cr- we created our duo, piano duo, which kind of well what was nice it sort of just happened naturally we didn't actually create, decide to create it but we started playing together and then it just sort of, sort of just continued so it's, it's lovely to be in Townsville together Yes, because he's Uh, here as well. Although we don't play very much together (laughs) this time, sadly, only... Uh, well, we just played last night, and uh, yes, I saw I saw last night's concert as, <laughs> as we we're recording this. This is a Saturday,
1: and, and on yes. Friday night in the opening concert. Yeah, this marvelous. We had the fun Jace piece of as well. Yes, three of you on two pianos. Yes,
0: but it's a, it, it's not a very serious piece. So I no. mean, and that, uh, and but we very have, entertaining. It is very entertaining, <laughs> and we have um, a piece of Sally Beamish, the composer in residence, called Sonnets, which is also for three pianists. Which actually, because Charles and I run London Piano Festival since seven years ago and uh, we commissioned Sally to write a piece for us so that was premiered in London two years ago
1: It's interesting that you form such a, a close bond with another pianist who had dare I suggest a, a quite a different style of upbringing I imagine mm. to, to how you came through
0: do, do you find differences in your style of playing or do they just meld so so well? Um, yeah of course there are differences but they can be also great when you have differences but we, I think we have both we just struck it perfectly because We had the same teacher, so we had a lot of very same attitude to the sound, you know, to certain details in music, and and yet we we are quite different, and uh, we can bring something, some interesting ideas uh, from both sides. The nicest things about us playing together, we feel like, one, we never ever fight in the rehearsal, we never have this kind of power struggle, which you do get sometimes between pianists, And string players and sort of, you're not sort of fighting like in obvious way who is the more important, but I think there is something, a little bit of power struggle because of course piano in in many chamber works, majority of chamber works is quite dominating part. And um, strings like to feel uh, that they are you know, also quite dominant. <laughs> They're you almost know, like so, little mini piano So, so it's yeah. sometimes, you know, sort of, there can be some tensions in the rehearsals. And, <laughs> and Charles and I are just like never, I, I mean, we, we worked for many, many years together, and we never, ever had a fight on, to do with our rehearsal musical because we think of our duo is something like, as I say, as one. Yeah. So we just want it to be as good as it possibly can be. Of course. No matter who is has which part.
1: Well, that's the way it should be. So yes. well, well done that that's, that's <laughs> yes. And that's why it's so enduring, I suppose. Oh, wow. uh, you mentioned the London Piano Festival, which yes. you founded with, yeah. with Charles. Why did you guys decide to do
0: that? Well, we've, again, because of being friends for so long and playing together with the, We really wanted to create some kind of event uh, together. We thought about the festival and, and but there's so many chamber music festivals everywhere. Mm-hmm. So uh, we both had a connection with King's Place, which is one of wonderful halls in London, which has two fantastic Steinways. And somehow because we've played there both quite a lot, suddenly we just got this idea, but it took so long before we actually managed to start it. Before we had to. Yes, yeah. it took almost three years that talking to King's Place people and persuading them that this is a good idea and what we're going to do with it. And, you know, it's hard work and it takes a lot of time, but I have to say, you know, it's very rewarding. And sort of our festival ha- has become one of their most successful events in King's Place. So I'm happy to say, I think we now after a few years, have starting to have our own audience, which knows us because it's, it's a big challenge in a city like London with just so many events going on on the same night and, mm. and to attract people to come to piano festival. Few, I mean, it's only runs for four or five days, but still for us it's a big thing to organize and we, we need to try and keep it varied because we can't just have piano recitals every night. So we, Oh, so it's not wall-to-wall piano? Uh, no, it's piano, kind of based around piano. We have jazz piano every every year, uh-huh. and we have some kind of lecture or spoken word also to do with piano, and we have children's concerts. And two piano. well, one of our main thing for like six years was Two Piano Gala, which we created, which people who play recitals and other events come together and we play two piano pieces with different formations. And it's quite an unusual concept, which really struck chord with audiences. I think they really, the most successful concerts were the two piano. It's like a party time, you know, and, and uh, we've got even, you know, the BBC in, involved. They they love the idea. So because it's quite unusual yeah. also, you know, to, to get different people. It's quite theatrical to see swapping, you know, and... Yeah. Uh, and piano you... sounds so different, yeah. Awesome.
1: Well, our next piece of music now uh, ties in with what you've just been talking about uh, before with Charles, because this is the two of you in yes. a wonderful duo from uh, Rachmaninoff. Tell us about this piece.
0: Well, Rachmaninoff's second suite is a glorious uh, demonstration of piano virtuosity, beautiful tunes. Um, this was written, I think, just after Rachmaninoff had his really bad depression and didn't try it for mm, a couple of years. So I think uh, it's very joyful, like for Rachmaninoff's music, like brilliant, vibrant, you know, and very deep, com- complex piano writing. You know, it took us a long time to record our CD with other, the, the first piano suite. And uh, yeah, one of our definitely favorite things to play.
1: Tarantella from Rachmaninoff's Piano Suite Number Two for Two Pianos, Charles Owen, and Katia Apkecheva, the pianists, and Katia is my guest in conversation today from the Australian Festival of Chamber Music in Townsville. Well, Katia, you mentioned Steinway in the previous segment, and um, a pianist, of course, can't take their instrument with them like uh, other
0: instrumentalists
1: do. <laughs> yeah, is there a particular
0: quite. brand you prefer? Is it Steinway? Well, Steinway is my favourite piano. Yeah. Also, well, which I mean, I'm also Steinway artist. So, uh... so what does that mean in practice? <laughs> you get a small discount if you want to hire a Steinway. <laughs> well, that's a start. <laughs> you well, you, I, I have my my photograph in a Steinway Hall in London. <laughs> it's nice, and well, you have a support, certain support. You sort of they actually Steinways have been our partners in London Piano Festival. So I mean, there are dev- sort of you get to know the team. You, you know, and like in London, you get to know the piano technicians, which you can book and and i genuinely i love steinway pianos
1: mm. can, can you articulate the, the difference between them that that makes steinway your preference uh
0: yes i just think that in terms of possibilities of colors that you can find in best examples of steinways for me it's incomparable i to any other mm. fantastic pianos well at least that that's just in my experience and i know there are some, of course, there are some fantastic other pianos, and Fazioli is kind of very popular these days. Mm. But I'm yet to play Fazioli, which would for me be better than the best Steinway I've played. So, uh, but it's it's very individual, you know, and and I totally respect, uh, you know, if some people have other choices, and uh, not again, not all Steinways are great, or not not all of them are. Equally, sort of, some of them are harder to play in some ways to tame, like you know, sort of yeah, a beast <laughs> to like, tame.
1: Does that mean it's like it's it's harder to sound good, as it were? Yes, well,
0: mean? because sometimes, especially co- big concert Steinways, maybe the ones which are really new they have really strong sound. You have to to, to play very softly. It kind of needs a little bit of adjusting, maybe. Do you find
1: it takes time to adjust to each of those pianos, or I mean, I suppose you have to do it very quickly, don't yeah, you?
0: Yeah, yeah, you have to do it. Ten quickly. minutes. I mean, <laughs> I mean yeah. <laughs> I mean, you because if you do it all your life and, you know, and you can't adjust to piano, sorry, it doesn't say something good about yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, so, I mean, yeah. So, so I mean, I'm lucky in a way that majority of concerts I do these days on are on good standard pianos. You mm-hmm. know, I mean, of course, in my younger days when I started playing, I had concerts in all sorts of venues and, you know, it's not always nice to play on a really Mm. poor piano and not in good condition, you know. Uh, But still, you know, it's, um, in some ways, you know, I like the fact that we don't have to obsess about the instrument like string players do, for instance, and all these nightmares with international travel, checking in, you know, booking the seat, you know, and, and Yes, you you don't have it with you, but then you get there. It's psychologically it, you just play what's in front of you. So that's what I mean. You don't obsess about it, and you just do the best you because can. Because that's the way it is. Yeah. yeah, you think of you really try to think of color, of music, of what you're trying to create. Mm-hmm. And I mean, of course, one always wants to have the best possible piano, but you know, it's all right.
1: So, what do you like to do when you're not uh, playing the piano and traveling the world? How do you relax?
0: So it's a difficult questions. not always easy to relax when you're also used to this kind of high-intensity lifestyle. I mean, normally I'm busy because I have a 10-year-old daughter. So my relaxation, so to speak, is actually being with family, doing some home things, cooking, you know. But I, I'm quite sort of, you know, I, I enjoy hanging out with friends, you know, going out. Kind of quite no- normal things. I enjoy living in London because it has unbelievably rich cultural life so and I like cultural life but I mean I actually very often like to do something else not go to piano recital but uh, going to art gallery or I love opera I have to say Ah. or just going to theatre. Well you just mentioned opera and that's interesting because our next choice is from the world of opera Uh, it's Wagner, Tristan und Isolde. Uh, Why this one Katia? Well, again, I, I guess because our uh, conversation, you mentioned that something that influenced me in life and something to do with uh, you know, me growing up, that uh, my parents are both pianists and repetitors in major opera theaters in Moscow. And I've been growing up with hearing singers sing in our tiny apartment in Moscow. Uh, and very patient neighbors <laughs> listening <laughs> to it and um, yeah I'm just sort of was growing up with hearing opera repertoire and we at home ha- have these big scores of operas and um, I remember uh, once been ill with some flu or something and then I took out this one of big scores and it was Wagner we had quite a lot of Wagner operas and I put the Vinyl record on with, and and I started following it with the score, and I absolutely just got hooked on it. And also, of course, uh, you know, those times when there were no phones and no, no computers, so I mean, you really. It seems like life was richer in many ways because you know that was my entertainment yes. <laughs> as, a, as a as a teenager or a child, you know. And I just remember, like, I was completely hypnotized by that world of feelings, intensity, and in in Wagner's scores. I mean, the amount of detail he writes about how Isolde looks at Tristan with what expression, and and you actually can hear it in music so amazingly that, of course, sometimes you go to opera theater, you, you miss out all these details. But when you follow the score and you listen, it's, yeah, it's very special.
1: The overture from Wagner's Tristan und Isolde. The choice of my guest in conversation today, pianist Katia Apekasheva. Well, Katia, if you could go back in time to meet a composer or a musician from history,
0: who would you like to meet? So many. <laughs> a, oh my God. Yeah. Well, maybe Schumann.
1: So, what would you want to ask Schumann if you if you met him? I
0: ask. I don't know. I just want to meet him. Just see what he was like. <laughs> That's another question. I mean, Beethoven, I mean, it's a bit terrifying. But <laughs> I mean, because, uh, like, sort of, he was definitely, from all the information we have, that he was a very difficult man. <laughs> but. I guess I would just prefer to observe Observe them them rather than ask questions. I don't know, you know, they probably had no much patience (laughs) to be asked any questions, you know. It's interesting because you you
1: mentioned, for instance, performing the Sally Beamish piece, uh, you know, a composer who is well and truly alive and you Mm -hmm. meet and you talk to. So do you actually see the personalities of living composers come through in their music? And does does having met them change the way you interpret the music?
0: Um, I I think, yeah, I think it does change something. I mean, not in an obvious way, but yes, I I actually really enjoy meeting composers. I know quite a lot of living composers and worked with, and one of my closest friends is actually a composer as well, Elena Langer, a fantastic Russian composer. And and, uh, yeah, the personality definitely comes through and they have their styles. Um, Yeah, but I mean, so many... I mean, Schubert, also just one of my absolute favorite composers who lived an unbelievably short life. Mm. And um, I would have loved to have met him.
1: Mm. Well, if you weren't playing the piano, traveling the world and so on, it may be hard to imagine given, given that upbringing at that uh, the school in Moscow. But uh, can you imagine what else
0: you'd be doing if it wasn't playing the piano? I think maybe I'd be a linguist. A linguist? I, I, I always, it's one of my biggest regrets. I mean, I like speak a couple of languages, but to not know more languages, because I think Even I Even more than you do. <laughs> I, I don't know that many. You know, if you, if you speak to a person in I don't know Switzerland, Germany, that that area, Austria, they all know like three, four languages. Yeah, I just think it's an amazing thing, to fascinating thing also, languages. I sometimes like comparing the words, how they are connected and similar, and it just opens up so much of um, your vision, I think, of the world. It's not only about language, but the culture and something along those lines. Also, I love animals. I don't know. I I sometimes kind of think, I I wouldn't be a vet, but maybe something to do with exploring and yeah. Nice.
1: Well, Cassie, it's been absolutely marvelous talking to you today. But before I let you go, you do have one more piece of music to introduce. And interestingly enough, it's a piece of Schubert, uh, who you mentioned as a composer just a moment ago that you'd like to meet. But uh, why have you chosen this piece? Um,
0: it's an iconic, most iconic sonata by Schubert. I mean, there are, again, numerous pieces that I love by Schubert and not only piano. But this one also because I played it and I'm planning to record it. Uh, his last sonata in B-flat major most otherworldly sort of most probably most personal work of his and just before he died and of course he died unbelievably young and yet it has a feeling of an old soul and uh, I always for me that's a great mystery sort of how that works you know the young person but who you know basically dying very very ill and how it reflects in the music with this kind of feeling of maybe a farewell of the unbelievable depth of emotion and kind of reflecting. Yeah, so it's very special, especially the second movement. Katia
1: Apekasheva, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Pianist Katya Apekasheva, who I spoke with earlier in the year at the 2023 Australian Festival of Chamber Music in Townsville. To look out for her latest album released this week with fellow pianist Charles Owen featuring the music of Poulong, Debussy and Milot, published on the Orchid Classics label. Next year, the Australian Festival of Chamber Music runs from the 26th of July to the 4th of August. For a winter break in Queensland full of fabulous music and diverse world-class artists, you really can't beat it. Visit afcm.com.au for more information. That's the program for today. Find us at 2MBSFindMusicSydney.com slash In Conversation or search 2MBS In Conversation in your preferred podcast app. And you can also listen to In Conversation via the new free 2MBS app, which is available for download at both the Apple Store and Google Play. I'm Simon Moore on 2MBS Find Music Sydney and around Australia on the Community Radio Network.